I'm your host, Mr. James, and you are listening to Right in the Schoolies. So my next guest is mental health doctor, rock star of med Twitter, and self-professed ginger moron, Dr. Benjamin Janaway. Ben, hello. Uh, how are you doing? And uh, this is the perfect time for the train to come past. So <laughs> that. I'll speak up a little bit. No worries. How are you, Joe? Uh, not not too bad, thank you. It's uh, it's it's good good to see you, and uh, and your your marvelous lockdown hair. Uh, although I can't really <laughs> talk at this point, it's it's re- <laughs> it's reaching Jimmy Neutron levels over here. Well, I always remember your quiff. So this is no surprise. I'm just glad that I've still got the hair. To be honest with you, it's been getting on a bit now. <laughs> I, I, I guess there are there are plenty of people sort of our age that it, they begin getting the penalty spot on the back of the head and the M effect, and that's it. It's all gone. Well, it's a mark of wisdom, so I'm told. So that should tell you something <laughs> about me. <laughs> so Ben, tell us about where you went to school. Um, what year did you join? What year did you leave? Do you remember anything in particular about it? So I went to secondary school at King Edward the Sixth, which is a grammar school in Southampton. Um, placed what used to be near the the Dell, the old Southampton football ground. And I believe I joined, oh crikey, I know when I left, it was about 2006, it must have been about 2001 maybe. Um, so it was a grammar school, my, my, my dad went there and he came from a family that were very working class and he managed to get in on a scholarship. And from that point on, he always saw it as almost his duty to try and give me the same opportunities. And we had to sit an exam for it and everything like that. And I was surprised to get in because when you're, you know, in primary school, you you don't really think about these kind of things. You're, you're rather isolated from these different kind of class divides and restriction of opportunities to many people. And I, looking back, I was very lucky to go where I went. Um, and I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't take full advantage of it because being a naive kind of young person, I thought this was fairly normal. And only looking back now do I realise how lucky I was to go somewhere that had that level of expertise in its teaching, that level of kind of an old boys network, that level of esteem to it. So what I found with it is I was surrounded by very, very intelligent people from very well-off and well-to-do families. I remember one of the one of the kids, um, his dad was the richest person in the UK and you had to scan your hand to get into his grounds. And to me, that always seemed a very odd thing to be part of because that wasn't really my life or my experience. And what I realised is that being surrounded by such incredibly intelligent and well-adjusted people, that in some ways the difference between your background became very striking. And for me, it was a very good thing in terms of personal growth that I realised that I would have to kind of push myself a little bit to catch up with them. And I found that during my five years there, although I never really kind of felt <clears throat> part of the scene, part of that kind of class, it, it, it showed me that different side of life and how people think and also how people can be quite isolated in a social cultural milieu. And I'm really glad I went, not just because I got some good grades out of it and because of that, because it learned... Well, I learned how to deal with these kind of differences and the different opportunities people get and to recognise that actually we aren't all so lucky. Um, so I guess that would be one of the major things of having been at King Edwards is that it presented great opportunities, but I realise that not everyone has been afforded them. 
Mm. And of course, with the grammar school angle as well, having to sit uh, an entrance exam aged 11, mm. I would have thought. Uh, for our for our international listeners, this is something that you don't always have to do elsewhere. But And, and most um, secondary schools in the UK, we don't have an entrance exam. Uh, but the 11 plus exam, was that the one that you did or did you do common entrance? Or don't you remember? I think it was... I think it was the 11 plus. I just remember sitting this exam in the, in the big hall. Um, and then a few weeks later being told I'd been accepted and my dad being really excited and me being like, okay. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't think I really perceived the significance of it at the time. In terms of the, in terms of the grounds of King Edwards, I've, I've sort of driven past it a couple of times, but never, never actually been in. Can you just describe it? It's quite a grand old place, really. Yeah, so it looks like an old 1950s prison that's been converted into a school to an extent. It's a big <laughs> red brick building, and since then there's been lots of kind of renovations and added bits. We had a huge uh, kind of private tennis courts and hockey tours. We had a big rugby field. We had a like a gazebo kind of changing area for the rugby. We had our own science block. And the whole thing just had this big fence around it, as, as many schools do that I at the time kind of saw as prison gates more than anything. But it was inside, it was very grandiose. There, there were pictures of King Edward VI uh, up on the wall. There were the, the four major houses of the schools, so very Hogwarts. Um, but to be honest with you, looking back, it, it always had this feel of something that was a bit out of time, that there was this level of regal ethos that was being quite tenuously held on to as the world moved on. And I think some people really gelled with it. Uh, they taught a lot of classics there, which a lot of people very liked. I remember being sat and remembering that Caecilius was in the garden. That was the main lesson I learned from Latin. <laughs> but it was very much a place that felt like it was out of time. And the ethos of that and this kind of almost conservative ethos to the entire approach was something that felt very much stuck in the 1950s. Mm. And it was quite interesting as well, given the sort of demographic of Southampton as as we know it and that sort of general area. It's it, it's very atypical, I would say, to a couple of schools you'd find down the road, for example. Oh, yes. We had, um, I think it was Belmore down the road. And I always remember being told, because in I think your second or third year, you were allowed to go out at lunch to go to the fish and chip shop down the road. And we always remember to be told to stay away from the boys from the flower estates, which if you hear that, it sounds like something out of, you know, the film Grease, like, you know, <laughs> who are the flower estate boys. It doesn't sound particularly threatening. Who are these guys that are going to dance and serenade us? But I remember there was this large perception that we were all these kind of posh kids that, felt better of ourselves than the general public and yeah there would often be scuffles between some of the upper the upper school lads and these kids and looking back though that perception wasn't wrong there was a lot of feeling I think from the school pushed from the school that we were better um not that I agree with that at all I remember being in a drama class once and they asked us all to stand in the line and one of the teachers went Right, so on the left is the majority of the UK, on the right is you, and you are the top 1% of this country, you are the future leaders. And I remember sitting there feeling very uncomfortable about that at mm. the time, because all of my friends I went to school with that went off to Wilden and places in Hedge End where I'm from, they weren't told this kind of stuff. And it, it, it kind of struck me that there was this big superiority complex around King Edwards 
And I think the way that it isolated itself somewhat in the juxtaposition to the rest of Southampton in this little 1950s play time war really fed into that. It really fed into that. And in terms of that feeling stuck in time, uh, tell us a bit about the uniform that you had to wear and uh, any, <laughs> any, any, any of the uh, other strange sort of esoterica that you would have had to have been involved in. So we had to wear pretty much generic school stuff, you know, the mm. blades, the tie, and the tie was a, a blue and white striped one. And, you know, we'd always get told of having our shirts untucked. And if you were cool, you'd have your shirt untucked. And obviously I was super cool, so I always had it tucked in. Um, and there were always little things like girls weren't allowed to wear too much makeup or too much jewellery, but the upper six girls would always push that line and the other kind of esoteric stuff we used to have a chaplain who would talk in the school meeting every morning um who would talk about well obviously chaplain related things and we <laughs> i guess the most esoteric thing we did and it was very strange is we we tried to set a, a guinness world record for the biggest um kind of line dance or something like that and i remember us all being out on the field <laughs> and doing it and having to learn this this one routine and song, I think it was a celebration of like five hundred years or two hundred and fifty years or some something. My memory for it is terrible, but I remember thinking, "What are we doing?" Do you mean line dancing, <laughs> as in the Stetson and the whole doshi doing? Oh God, no, no. I wish that had been the case. No, I was going to um, say. I think no. It was like a chorus line. It was a chorus line, not line right. dancing. Okay. Line. We had to wear these King Edward's shirts and. I can just—I remember all the kind of local kids at the gates just looking at us, just thinking, <laughs> "What are you doing? This, this is not cool for our rep. This is not cool for our rep at all." That's, that's amazing. <laughs> Do you know if you broke the world record or not? It'll be—it's got to be out there somewhere. We broke one, so both the world record and my dignity at the same time. Um, <laughs> I think one has currently been replaced; the other is not. So, <laughs> excellent. Now, obviously. When you get to secondary school, you start dividing up into subjects. You've already mentioned classics, something that I know a lot of people didn't do, myself included. Um, and and it's one of those one of those topics I I would love to have studied. You know, I love I love mythology and and sort of looking at uh, you know how how stories evolve from one to the other and all that. But what were your favourite subjects and what were the ones that you absolutely dreaded? So my favourite subjects in secondary school were art. English and theatre studies. Um, I did not really gel with Latin because I don't really have, or at least I didn't have kind of a languagey brain. I think there's this myth of left brain versus left brain versus right brain. It's it's all a big myth, but there are certain things that you are strong at and certain things that you are weaker at. And language for me was at least foreign languages wasn't great at the time. I, I love it now. But I think, as you said, with classics, what you begin to realise as you grow older, we become more fascinated with stories because you begin to see the same stories play out. There was a book I read called The Writer's Journey a couple of years ago where they talked about how all major successful stories in the West and in the East are based upon the same core principles, the same interchangeable character ethoses and the same general story arcs where the hero falls from grace, comes back, falls from grace again and returns with this kind of moderated view of the world. And 
when you look at Disney and when you look at Greek stories and Roman stories and all that kind of stuff, there seems to be the same ethos, the, the same general characters tend to recur. And as someone that's, you know, training as a, a psychiatrist, you begin to realize that because all these stories are written by humans, that the the nature of these stories and the messages that they convey are very human stories. And I think if I had done that at school, I would have had a better inkling of where I am now. Because to be honest, stories are just a roadmap of how people think. And the ones that are consistent are the ones that, or the legends and the myths, are more reflective of us than the than the actual stories they tell. And and on that sort of note, did you did you remember studying anything in particular in English that really really made you think, wow, that was great? Yeah, so it was with Mr. Kettle, who was one of the English teachers back at the time. Uh, we did a a play. I think it was called Journey's End that we studied, and it was a play about the war. Great play. Yeah, really great. And I remember that kind of final chapter, which I think is somewhat parodied in Blackadder Goes Forth, where it's once more onto the breach, my dear friends. And I remember we had to write a letter home to our respective partners as to our feelings the day before going over. And there was something that really struck me about that, this the centrality of human experience against what is essentially annihilation. And watching, and I'm a big fan of this, Band of Brothers a few years later, and I still watch it every Christmas. For some reason, it has a bit of a Christmassy feel to it. Probably the, the Battle of Bastogne episode where it's all in snow. Um, there's always been something both callously horrendous but uniquely human about how people act under war and how people act under essentially fighting for something they believe in on behalf of others. And although I'm characteristically anti-war, there's something very interesting about the kind of poetry and considerations that come out of that situation. And some of the, I mean, growing up in a rather nationalist society like England that still has this, this hangover of the empire, that is all very much part of our culture, agree with it or not. There's always the idea of being the hero that vanquishes the great evil. And although that's a bit of a myth these days, that cultural ethos does continue. And I think that what we know, what I've noticed a lot is that we focus a lot on the idea of this brave English hero, this stalwart kind of force against the, the brigade of malevolence. And I think when I was reading Journey's End, this was the first time I kind of really understood where this idea comes from, that we are this little country that stands against the world and tries to lead it. And although that's a time of the past, it also makes it makes you feel very indebted to the people that have stood for that in the past. And that I'm, kind just, of thing. I'm just remembering the first time I did Journey's End would have been at, um, at Peter Simmons, where, of course, we mm. met. And I remember in my first one of my first um, English literature classes doing it. And, and I'd I'd loved the war poets at school, mm. been really impressed. Uh, Wilfred Owen every year I teach a, a unit all about war poets and Wilfred Owen gets real top billing for me. Uh, but certainly some of the, some of the stuff in journey's end is just, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, is it, is it Osborne, the one who only loves Winnie the Pooh and he just wants to sort of see his family again. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's that, it's that, um, 
I think for the first time, maybe as a young man, I'd, I'd begun to see that it's it's the vulnerability. I think Owen said it's um, the poetry is in the pity, that sense of it's the vulnerability that makes it so powerful. And the fact that I, I completely agree, but also the fact that you are saved from that yourself. Hmm. There's this interesting thing that people think about altruism. The, so altruism has many theories around it, but one of them is that the reason that you help other people is to feel good about yourself. And for that reason, you'll only help people who you would never want to be mm. because it does help them. Um, but on the other hand, it reminds you of how lucky you are. And people could claim that that's selfish. You'd have to argue it being a, a person-centered versus utilitarian ethos. But that's one of the things I think that makes it so humbling is that Yes, you can temporarily step into the shoes of soldiers who have died to protect some message or some freedom, but be spared the reality of that yourself. Mm. You can surreptitiously dip into the trauma, but then step away and be protected. And I, th I think that's one of the major things about it. Is it to a young man, 11, 12 years old, and it's not a man, it's a boy. Mm. You know? To be honest, I, I don't think we ever really graduate from being boys. Um, mm. I think we just end up being boys with thinning hair. <laughs> but I think that is one of the major lessons of the world is that we are so lucky to be to be spared the trauma that others haven't been spared. And to feel that, there's a universality in that, that we could all be in that position for the grace of God or the the idiocy of a politician that we could be in that same situation, how lucky we are not to be. Mm. I think that's absolutely true. And it's very interesting to hear that it was, it's always world war one stuff that I think really, really does shock people almost. I mean, I know band of brothers is obviously world war two, but it's that yeah. idea of, you know, world war two, I still think is seen as the, the just war and world war one is seen as the, 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 the folly of, like you say, politicians, policy, ideals, and, and, and naivety. So were there any times that you managed to get into trouble at school, Ben? Anything that you think is, <laughs> is worth is worth mentioning? Yeah, two major things. One, I take full responsibility for. The other, I don't. The first was there was a friend of mine at school who was going through a very hard time. And I remember I used to, on occasion, skip lessons with her to go and sit in the music department and play piano and talk about the time she was going through with her parents. And I remember getting caught once um, and the teacher kind of seeing what was going on. And to his credit, he, 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 he pointed out that what we were doing was against school rules, but in an act of real kindness, which was very much, something that I realized was occurring more and more in the school in these very strict professor types that we all quite feared is that they were actually extremely kind people. And they just said, look, I can't remember the exact words he gave, but it was like this person, obviously, you know, you obviously very care much, very much about them, but don't place yourself at risk of being in trouble. Um, and then he kind of just walked away and left us to it. And from that point on, we, we kind of changed. We we went we went outside more, and we talked about things more outside. And I wouldn't really say that I got massively in trouble with it, but it was the first kind of brush where I realised that these authoritarian rules that they had were 
not completely concrete and that there was a level of humanity behind them. And for me, that was a real turning point where I said to myself that rules are very important, but there are times when they are to be broken. And it's, in, it's when there's that human element involved. But the second time, <laughs> in complete contrast, we had a, a supply teacher come in and he asked us to, I remember we were drawing the, a graph of the distance of a planet from the sun in its orbital period. And he said, right, here's the distance of Venus or some other planet. And I want you to draw it on the graph and tell us the, the, um, the orbital period. So I did. And he gave me detention because I didn't draw any lines linking from the y-axis to the data point. And he said, right, Ben, you get detention for that because you didn't show you working. And years later, when I got 100% on a physics exam, I kind of said to myself, hey, this guy was probably, probably a bit of a moron. Um, and I remember there was another girl in the class who did the exact same thing, except she cried, so we let her off detention. And looking back at that time, I thought, hella power move, hella power move. That was, that was smart, because this guy obviously could not deal with anything that was outside of his kind of control. And clearly emotion was outside of his, his capacity, bless his eyes. It's probably quite hard for him, actually, looking back and knowing what I know now. But that was the only time I really got in trouble and thought, oh, there was one more time, actually. So before our final day of secondary school, one of my friends had a party. And because it was King Edwards, he'd rented his own bus for the party because he was very rich. And this was the time in my final year when I suddenly went from being very unpopular to suddenly having lots of friends. And I'm not sure what changed. Um, I think I just kind of stopped caring a little bit about what people thought of me and just tried to be a bit more social and got out of my own head. And I remember getting extremely, extremely drunk. And the kind of drunk, and we've all been there, where you never sober up. You, you don't have a hangover because you're still pissed. And I remember we all went into school and I was sat in one of the last classes <laughs> and I, I was, I was rat assed. I was absolutely rat assed. I was having a great time. And I remember being sent <laughs> to the deputy head's office and he looked at me and went, this is your last day, isn't it? And I went, yeah. And he went, you've worked very hard here, haven't you, Ben? I went, yeah. and he went have a good life and sent me out of the office <laughs> I think this is another time that you know you've got this archaic institution but in the end it's full of humans that realize the irony of trying to corral the the energy of oh, quite repressed schoolboys and just going you know what let them be morons a bit what is the harm and I think I felt like I dodged a bullet that day. But looking back on that deputy head, if he ever hears this, fair play, mate. Fair play. <laughs> <laughs> he probably wanted you out of his office. You were probably reeking the place out with the, the fumes from uh, from the night before. That weird brandy that Mel brought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of teachers, and you mentioned uh, Mr. Kessel. What a great name, by the way. Uh, yeah, did you have any? Great. Did Did you have any favourite teachers? Any least favourite teachers? Were there any good teacher nicknames or anything like that? Ooh, so having a favourite teacher is difficult because so many of them stay in your memory for different reasons. There was Mr. Kelly, who was the Spanish teacher, 
and his son was at the school as well. And he was a bit more old school, a bit more didactic. And I remember him saying something to me that I often say to myself now, he said, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. And I think this was in the context of teaching Spanish grammar rules. So he would say, if you get this wrong now, you're always going to get it wrong. So sort of out. Whereas now I completely agree with that extrapolated to a bigger range of things. And especially as someone who kind of tries to understand the mind and how we perceive things, we as people very early on develop these perceptions of the world that it is very much practice makes permanent, but not perfect. And this is one of the kind of the big things behind cognitive behavioral therapies and the etiology of depressive and anxiety disorders is that we think in a way that's maladaptive because we've learned to do so. Um, and actually, it's weird because at the time I found him quite scary. But now I really think I'd get on with him because um, someone who's had to come to that conclusion themselves has obviously been through quite a lot themselves. Other teachers, um, <laughs> Senorita Rod Price, uh, she was one of my Spanish teachers and I think probably my first crush. Mm-hmm. Um, so apologies if she's listening. Um, my art teacher, Miss, um, oh God, what was her name? She was Russian. Um, and she was your your typical art teacher with the kind of big flowing shirts and the kind of oh, whatever personality. And the Russian really helped because it made it sound really exotic. And art, I loved art because you just go and they'd be like, right, here is clay, do a thing. And you'd be like, cool. And I remember sitting down with her once in the spare art room and just discussing like what I was making. And it was a very different way of thinking. I'd imagine that she probably was viewed to be very cool by the other teachers because she had this I don't give a whatever air about her. And I really liked that. And then, of course, yeah, Mr. Kettle, because he I just loved the way he was. He was very kind. He was very friendly. And he always felt as if he was a little bit uncomfortable with the the dogmatic and didactic air of King Edwards. Like he was your kind of frustrated academic who was really just there to try and teach people very captain oh my captain kind of character okay bit of a bit of a john keating sort of character did you ever did you ever remember a particular lesson where it might not have been from any of the teachers that you just said but one lesson where you you sort of sat back after and thought oh that was actually really good or any lessons where you sat back after and went what the hell was that about what happened there <laughs> it was religious studies and i was about 12 or 13 and I was very much coming to the conclusion that I was um, an atheist, if not an agnostic. And I remember, it's a very lovely guy um, teaching us about Christianity and this concept of the God of the gaps. And I remember the sentence he used was that to rationalise evolutionary theory and what we know about the Big Bang theory and the genesis of the universe, that God lit the blue touch paper and stood back and allow us to be Quote he used was stewards of the universe, that we would take care of it in God's stead. And I think this is the first time that I really kind of just, in my view, and this is my view only, called BS on something with such zeal that later, having got very much into Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, that I thanked him for actually, because it was the first time that going to a primary school where we used to have to go to church all the time, and then King Edwards, which, uh, although it wasn't 
you know, it was, it was like a Christian, I wouldn't say it was a Christian school, but there was a very large Christian ethos to it with the prayers we had to do each morning and all that kind of thing, where I really felt for the first time that there was almost a level of brainwashing going on in these schools um, towards a certain way of thinking, a certain way of life. And I think that was the first time where I really left a lesson and felt myself not angry because I, I didn't really think that, it was, that the emotions I felt were anger. It was more just perplexity at what to me was, it seemed suddenly extremely illogical. Like it was a moment of insight where I just went, eh? And looking back now, the whole ethos of King Edwards is somewhat like that. It's this live in this way of thinking, this set of rules and set of beliefs, and don't question them. And the reason I paused was because that is controversial because it touches on the idea of religion and the frailty and whether it's true or not. But I think for me that was a big lesson because it made me begin to really think, sorry, train again. Mm -hmm. We need to think outside of our bubbles. And King Edwards was a bubble. It was a bubble of rich, upper-class people that had this rather struggling Christian slant on it that was really fighting to stay relevant as the world moved on. I think what you've touched on there as well, you mentioned uh, Dawkins and, and the hitch, that idea that can you challenge something? No. Well, why is that? And that's something that I think is a very a very valid point. And it's one of the things that I, I've always felt very conflicted about the idea of religion in schools, full stop, because I think that like anything, there has to be a balanced view. The same thing with politics in schools. I've, I've said this before on the pod, but if I ever teach something like an inspector calls, we have to talk about socialism because it's a key theme. And J.B. Priestley was a socialist. But of course, it's very easy for criticism to come your way and say, why are you teaching my kids about socialism? I don't agree with that. And you think, well, I have to tell them about that it exists. And the same thing is I think we should learn about all religions and also about how humanist society works. But that's something that isn't often taught in schools. So it's it. I think that there, there should be more balance, for sure. No, I agree. And having read, so I really recommend this, um, Christopher Hitchens' autobiography, um, I think it was Hitch 22. Hitch 22. Got it right I just here. finished recently. And being a salacious and scandalous piece of work, excellent. It's so very much Christopher. And I've had arguments with his brother on Twitter. Uh, well, it's not hard to get into an argument with Peter Hitchens. <laughs> But it's really interesting that in the same family with a very much similar experience, you're going to have two very diametrically opposed characters come out of it. And Christopher, as much as I think he this is this incredibly talented writer, he had his flaws. Mm. And when we touch on these ideas of people being scared about their kids learning about socialism or on the other side, um, fears of capitalism what we have to realize is that most of us want the same things mm. it's just the language that we speak in and the groups that we move in work on polarizing certain ideas it's the idea of group think and that if you're outside of the group then you're suddenly not identifying with it that within certain groups the most extreme people are held to be the most um, valuable to emulate which is how extremism breeds that the most extreme are exalted and the ones that don't always agree are kicked out, that there's no room for rational debate. And we studied a lot about this for our psychiatry exams, weirdly enough, how 
attitude is influenced by culture and how this can feed into how we perceive the world. And I think that you're completely right that the, uh, the concept of teaching religion in schools, of teaching political ethos in schools, it's something that needs to be done very carefully. But I think the thing we miss is that when you're seven to 12 years old, you're incredibly vulnerable. You're, to, to use a phrase borrowed by Steve, from Stephen King, as a kid, your mind is mashed potato that can be pushed around to hold your parents' gravy. Mm. And I've met people who who are conservative and they are the loveliest people in the world and they would not agree with some of the extreme stuff, or at least that I would class as extreme that you see, which is probably not true, actually. It's probably just built up by the media. But because of the way they brought up, I can see how it's a very engaging way of thinking. It's very stoic. It's very about rules and history and this idea of being the hero, whereas liberalism, or at least how we see it in the West, or the English West at least, is all about equality and all these things. But both would claim to be about equality. One would just be about earning equality and the other would be about deserving equality. And although I've simplified it, the core tenet's the same. But it's just how we go about it. And I think one of the things that society does is it doesn't allow for that rational debate, that discourse. It's all about identity. I am the best capitalist. I am the best socialist. And if you disagree with me, you are the evil. And that's not the case. No. And I think going to King Edwards showed me one circle of people and although i don't hold any disdain against this group of people it's not the grand reality of most of the uk if not most of the world and i think there's a lot to be learned about having exposure to all of these ideas but with it with a compromise of teaching kids critical thinking first and if you're going to teach kids ideologies teach them how to take ideologies apart and of course, like with most critical thinking skills, it's a threat to ideology. And therefore, therefore, that's why it often doesn't get taught. And, and that's why I, I never forget when I taught briefly in the private school system. Uh, I did two years teaching in the school. And you know what? Lots of things about it I enjoyed. But there was one moment where I was looking at all the A-level courses that, that they, the kids were sort of signing up to do. And I was looking around for the ones that I did when I was at college. And I was looking around going, where's sociology? And they don't teach it. And I thought, no. what? <laughs> and no. that, was the, that was the first thing that made me go, no, I'm sorry, that's not okay. That, that, no. it, wasn't, it wasn't the one thing, but it was definitely something where I went, oh, no, I'm not, I don't know about this, actually. This is, a bad, this is a bad precedent to be setting. No, and I think one of the things about schools and one of the things that I've seen and I'm yet to decide whether I agree with it or not and I think it's always important to hold yourself in a position where you can say you know what I don't know I'm still learning there's nothing mm. wrong with that is that schools serve a societal function mm. there are schools that produce the working class there are schools that produce the ruling class and they are geared towards that King Edwards was very much geared to creating the ruling class and looking at my class base and how they moved on a lot of them still seem to live in this idea that they are deserving of things without working for them and that they are by their family name or their family riches. They seem to they seem to have just walked into a part of life where they can spend their entire time on a yacht. Mm. And then there are others who 
I won't name them, but friends that I became friends with quite late on who went the complete opposite way. They all, they all went to trying to be rock stars. One mm. went to try and be a lawyer and he's been very, very successful. I think he's a barrister now. And he's, I remember spending some time at his house in my final year and he, he was the loveliest bloke. There was Matt Orton, who is really, really lovely chap who wrote a film I think was very successful on Netflix uh, recently. I forget its name. And Matt, I had no idea that this is kind of who he was. He never came across that way. But he's become this incredibly creative. So as well as these schools producing what are, you know, could be quite arrogant and conceited people, they also drove some people to step outside of that and to pursue interests that were actually a lot more egalitarian. And I think when you read people like Hitchens, who were kind of forced into these rather archaic factory lines. That pushed him to do the opposite. He went, nah, screw this. I'm going to go off and report on war zones. And that tells you a lot about how people are built. And in psychology, we always try and find meaning behind every action. And I'm genuinely I'm of the belief that even if that meaning is not too specifically significant, it's built on something and to look at Christopher, there's this angry frustration of being misunderstood and needing to prove who he was and never quite feeling that he was secure in who he was and then extrapolating and sublimating this feeling of insecurity into trying to make the world a more just place. Mm. And I think one of the benefits of private school is that it might drive home to some of the people that go that actually how extremely privileged they are is an opportunity for them to try and equalize some of that to other people. And I think that's the major lesson I've learned from being at King Edwards is that I was very lucky to go there, but 99% of the people don't have that luck. And they are very just in being angry about this. There is a two-tier society. Yeah, and with with that, to to challenge that view a little bit, not, say, not saying that it is yours and yours alone, of course, but the argument that because somebody went to a private school with uh, opportunities to do this and this and this and so and one of those opportunities then to help people less fortunate than themselves uh, i guess the the obvious response to that would be um f- off that's really patronizing but of course isn't that because of opportunity and this is where you mentioned the two tier thing the opportunity structure of you know, the arts, for example, right now are completely being phased out of a lot of state schools, and, and they have been for a long time. And uh, we've always, I think one of the, the things they're talking about now is where are we going to get the next Kathy Burke? Where are we going to get the next Ray Winston? Where are we going to ne- get these new, you know, people who were working class actors? And, and they, 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 went through, they went through drama school because the state school system had at least grants available and things like that. So it, I just find that quite interesting. And with music, of course, as well, you mentioned... Well, if I if I may if I may wax rather inexpertly, and I will happily uh, ask for people to disagree on this, is that Britain is in a very desperate place. It is a wounded narcissist at this point. It is taken blow after blow to its idea of self, and the psychic retreat of Britain is to be a leader who is morally correct and stalwart and stoic against the malignancies of the world 
but at the same time balancing this indisputable irony that we are an incredibly classist and pathological state. The greatness of Britain has never been in its equality. It's been in its ability to conquer and to uphold the rather regimented societal structures. You just have to look at Parliament now and see Jacob Rees-Mogg waffle on about X or Y and think, why is this bullshit there? But you realise that it's it, it's talking to an idea. It's not about the specific content. It's this idea of a great empire. And that's very secure because we want to feel as if we're part of something great, especially when we're fading into irrelevance. And I think that there is this two-tier system. And the majority of people, and I say this somewhat biased, working in mental health, where the majority of people that I I treat and I work with are of a lower socioeconomic class. There are very rarely does a mental illness, if we were to say it in those terms, and I debate those terms more and more every day, very rarely is it specific to the upper class. It, those kind of things tend to be things like eating disorders, but depression, anxiety, psychotic spectrum disorders they unfortunately are much more predominant in people that are from poorer backgrounds, people that are from backgrounds where they're struggling. And that's where trauma really does come in. And we tolerate a lot of trauma in the UK just so we can wave a flag. And I think that that's one of the things. So when we come to this idea, it helps you to recognise your privilege and help people that are less fortunate. The other thing we have to realise is that the whole of British society relies on that inequality still being there. The only reason that we can have an upper ruling class is that there is a lower class that is held in that position. And I think it scares a lot of people to realise that if it wasn't for poverty and it wasn't for social inequality, they wouldn't enjoy the privilege that they have. And that scares people. And working in North East London you you begin to see how small and tiny the world of King Edwards is. Because to be honest with you, the majority of the people I work with would quite rightly see me as an oppressor, as someone that has benefited from a private education that is well-paid, that is in the upper echelon of society, and... As much as I don't agree with that, I can agree with their viewpoint about it. Because me earning what, 50, 60 grand a year, having a relatively cushy job, going home to a flat I can rent, treating somebody that's very unwell, who lives in a house, a second generation immigrant, who can't get a job, who half their family has a problem with drugs, who just can't get out of this, who every time they get better goes back to turning to drugs or relapses and comes off their medication and they get stuck in this size this cycle which unfortunately if society was more equal if they had more money if they had more access to the services that we wish to give them this cycle will be broken and i didn't want to get too political on this but this is a socio-political problem as much as it is one of biology and i would say more of social than anything else hmm. absolutely and and i think that what you've what you've said there and what you've what you've sort of given an insight into there is that it is very easy 
to use a buzzword, like you say, the whole idea of check your privilege. And it's true. But the problem is to check those kind of things is very scary. I know a friend of mine teaches in London and he says that his biggest issue, especially when he does pastoral outreach stuff, is to do with what you've just said. People seeing him as the oppressor because of their background and his background. And he 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 says it's just the most impossible thing to to work around because it's just there it's like a big obstacle that you you almost can't break down you have to work around it rather than anything else and i think you've completely touched on something that's very fundamental is we're scared of being shown our flaws Hmm. now i'm a 32 year old white doctor from hampshire i to be honest with you although i've had a very hard life in terms of my own mental health in terms of depression and things like that I've had a family that have paid my way through secondary school. I have completely taken the piss and yet still ended up getting into medical school. Medical school, I got drunk, fraternized and played rugby for six years and came out with relatively good degrees. I don't really have to try to be successful. And I've noticed even when I go onto the wards, and I hate to say this, White doctors get treated better. Hmm. White men get treated better. And I would never pretend that I haven't benefited from this. I can ask people to do a bunch of things. And because of the heuristic that exists about the posh British white person, it gets done. Whereas people from BAME BAME backgrounds, a lot of my colleagues seem to really have to fight a lot more. And to me, this is not a fair system and it's one that I have benefited from from my entire life and the question is should I be ashamed about it did I choose this life did I choose to be born to who I was born to no but could I blame myself for not trying to reverse it yes and as your friend said to be honest we are part of an oppressive society there is a indignancy in sending this white boy out into this area that is full of people that are immigrants and saying, oh, I'm so sorry you're feeling terrible. This is how you can change. When actually, God, yeah, that is really oppressive, isn't it? Mm. And even if you're trying to do the right thing with the best of intentions, unless you're standing in that person's shoes and had that experience, you are just this societal agent of change. do you expect them to understand you? Do, they ex- do you expect them to empathize with you when their entire life, people like you have been the reason they're in the position they're in? And I think that's one of the major reasons that we have so much unhappiness in Britain is that there's a lot of trauma out there that's held by society, but also tolerated by those that could change it because it benefits them for it to continue. But then I think like most problems, half of the initial issue is recognizing that it's there and there are as we've said there are a lot of people that would argue till the blue in the face that there is no such thing as oppression that there's no such thing as racism and 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 would go even one further and say well uh you know i'm not going to apologize for that and i'm not going to feel guilty about that because it doesn't achieve anything and of course this is where we are at this point in time but i i would much rather personally given given the world that we're in i'd much rather some people were talking about it than no one was talking about it because that would be i think far worse 
And I think the really important thing for me to realise is no matter how educated I become on these subjects, I will never be as educated as the ones that have to live it. But you have to do what you can, but realise that you're flawed as well. And if we could be more open about that, I think we could actually start having a discussion that helps people. And especially young people. And this is why I think that a lack of discourse in schools or, or a fear of talking about this kind of stuff in schools is part of a wider problem in society. Just one last thing for me, and this is sort of a bit of a bit of a bullshit question, really, like a lot of this stuff. But if you could meet your 16-year-old self, and if you could actually just have the, the briefest of conversations with them, what do you think you'd maybe tell them? I would say to myself, Ben, yes, you're smart. That doesn't make you special. There's no shame in finding common ground with people that intimidate you. And all this anger that you have, let it go. Listen to others, build connections with others. Don't retreat into this narcissistic defense of feeling like you're the victim. Just listen and learn and try to experience life. Get out of your own head. That would be what I tell my 16-year-old self. Very wise advice. Ben, thank you very much for being a guest on my podcast. It's been really fascinating, and I, I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. It's really flown by. Yeah, sorry for, for getting on my soapbox. <laughs> Not at all. We wouldn't have you any other way. Where can people find you if they want to sort of uh, listen to more of your pearls of wisdom? Um, usually at Pizza Hut, but <laughs> I would say I have a Twitter, which is just Dr. Janaway. I have an Instagram, which is the same thing. Or usually it's sleep, to be honest. It's, it's the main place to <laughs> find me. Well, I'll point them in your direction. Thank you very much, Ben. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Joe. And thank you for the opportunity. Pleasure. And that was that, my conversation with Dr. Ben Janaway, a guy who I've actually known for a very long time. True story, we used to work together at River Island in Winchester, back when we were both students at Peter Simmons College. He was in the year below me. And I did used to mercilessly bully him, uh, but only because I was jealous of his brilliant brain and his uh, his charming way with some of the shop girls. That's lost to the mist of time, I'm afraid. Don't be put off by Ben's self-deprecation. He is one of the most hardworking individuals I think I've ever met. And certainly when I was 18 and off partying with my friends, not even thinking about what I was going to do next... Ben was going almost every week down to Southampton General Hospital and was working unpaid shifts on the wards, shadowing doctors so that he could get a sense of what it would be like for him went to medical school. So I'm very glad that there are people like him out there in the community trying to make the world a better place. If you wish to support the pod, you can find me on Twitter at schooliespod or just search right in the schoolies. And that's the same for Instagram, right in the schoolies under the name Mr. James. Your homework is, of course, as ever, to give me some lovely reviews and some nice feedback. If you know of anybody who you think would want to be on our pod, be they well-known or lesser well-known, but you think that they have some good stories to tell, then get in touch on my social media. Class dismissed.